0: Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. It looked to spotlight like the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams, along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In the world of wrestling, where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads... Don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20x20 20 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even zubaz, then drop them a line at 20x20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also, check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bum me, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you balling on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh see me shining like a suit on puffy you know my grind and shit is too strong buddy that's why the dude call money i be something like it's nothing at all cause it's nothing to me it's probably something to y'all trying to smoke like me to come and fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence, bitch. You see the way I'm rapping. Yes, I throw this shit to death. but tell I'm running out of breath. but tell somebody cut a check, but either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh, fresh. we fresh. Fresh, fresh. Hey, welcome to the Fresh is the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier, and this is episode 178. Our guest for this episode is Joe Zanetti, who is making his feature film directorial debut with the movie Killbird. Zanetti has produced and directed a number of critically acclaimed short films, including The Chase and The Slumber Party, and has a number of feature films in development. Zanetti has also worked in the video games industry with companies such as Scopely, Capcom, Ubisoft, and Warner Brothers, including the Warner Brothers hit Batman Arkham Origins and Star Trek Fleet Command. And with his directorial debut, Kilbird, it's a conspiracy theory that's a bit of a political twist to it that'll have you question who are the good guys and who are the enemy and how much privacy do we really have and what lengths our government will go to keep their status quo. Kilbird tackles very timely subjects as such without kid gloves. And during our chat, we talked about creating thought-provoking questions in the movie. The research in writing Kilbird Staying away from cliche characters, how this movie differs from conspiracy movies of the past, his creative upbringing, his creative process, and his experience in the gaming industry. So without further ado, let's get on to this interview with Joe Zanetti. Uh, Just to get things started, um, I think uh, one of the, you know, without giving any spoilers, one of the underlying themes that I saw um, Mm -hmm. with this movie is the idea of Who's the good but who's the good guys who's the bad guys? what's the truth and what do you do with the truth? you know when mm-hmm. thinking about those things you know what comes to mind? what were you trying to say with this movie
1: gotcha it was it was definitely a film where I was trying to first experiment with expectations for the viewer because when you first are introduced to the subject matter you're given sort of a a stereotype of, oh, this is this paranoid terrorist in the woods, and then you have this innocent woman who's a birder, who's like a suburban wife, and it's completely clean. And I really wanted people, when they were watching the movie, to have their expectations sort of thrown on their head, so to speak, so that Everything they thought was true was wrong, and and I think it's it's generally something we see that we're very quick to make judgment and go to certain places when we perceive certain things that fall into uh, very specific boxes. So I, I really wanted to play with that, especially with our uh, our culture today, where with communications and things, people make snap judgments so quickly. So that was definitely an area I really wanted to explore as far as sort of the initial areas where we had Riyadh and what our initial experience was with him versus where we went with him, as well as with Taylor and what our initial perception was and and how that developed over time.
0: What sort of uh, research did you do to sort of make things realistic?
1: That I, uh, I went down a lot of rabbit holes on, <laughs> on that one, <laughs> to say the least. It's, uh, I mean, once you, once you start going down, it's, uh, it's really interesting what you find, because uh, the, uh, the writer I, uh, I optioned the initial draft from had all kinds of, I would say, old school c- conspiracies that he incorporated into it. I then looked into what started happening in the early aughts as far as post-Patriot Act and uh, once uh, and started digging through a lot of the Edward Snowden files, actually, okay. to see what kinds of NSA programs there were. So I feel like uh, now just for my Google searches alone, I'm probably on a watch list or something. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so uh, but uh, basically I started looking at all these things. And, you know, a lot of the initial items that Riyadh talks about in the film are are true programs that existed. So things like Prism. Fascia, X Keyscore, uh, Century Eagle, these were all programs that were looking at texts, looking at emails, looking at phones that became something that didn't require due process during our initial times after 9 uh, 11 when terrorism was the only thing on all our brains. And so that enabled a lot of these programs to, to move in motion. And then with that, I basically extrapolated to a even more dire worst case scenario, uh, of where fear is actually something that's being encouraged so that, uh, you know, even more dire programs can be put in, uh, put in place.
0: How did you organize all the, all the, all the stuff that you found during this rabbit hole? Did your, uh, did your walls look, crazy like you know his, his, his did, did
1: I have a conspiracy wall yeah did I have a conspiracy well am I uh I mean, well I mean I would say it was actually a really interesting exercise because I had my sort of bullet point list of here's my conspiracy and then as I started having research nuggets of here's a real life thing here's where I'm fictionalizing it was a very interesting thing where I, I sort of layered Truth and fiction upon each other as I was breaking down the, uh, the script. And it was it was definitely something, too, where I have to keep a lot of things until the very back end of the film. Yeah. Because if you reveal it too early, then it, it basically destroys the entire pacing. So it was also, what am I revealing when? So I had to create a timeline for myself, as well as what the actual motivations were for each player, and then what the agency interplay was happening, and then what the actual conspiracy was, and where I was basing it off, uh, off truth. So a lot of it was really... Uh, Complicated index cards that were put on board, so there was a little bit of a conspiracy wall to it actually <laughs> <laughs> when
0: you're when you're sort of diving into this source material what kind of mm-hmm. uh what kind of effect did it have on your own psyche got it it's uh it's it's
1: a really interesting question because it is something that always i i think it's a really interesting thing about America in that we we have Wonderful ideals and sometimes in certain time of frames when things get critical or there's crisis sometimes we we move closer to compromising our core values and it's sort of it was something where. It was interesting to see sort of dark paths that we then start to avoid again and it it interests me because i'm always. I always care about the ideal, and I always like bringing light on things that, uh, as citizens, we should be paying attention to and don't always. And it really comes to being educated and looking at, you know, what's actually under the snor- short, snappy comment that came out of, let's say, X senator's mouth or Y representative's mouth and looking to what's actually underneath. What's the actual law? What's the actual uh, documentation of it? And, and basically, that's, that, that was my main takeaway, was don't take things at face value. Learn for yourself. Know what's true. And then make your judgment. If, if some uh, talking head is saying it, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what you should believe. And you know, I think we should all have that kind of diligence in our head to some extent.
0: When you were making this film when you're how you know what did you do to stay away from any of these characters being cliche that one um that's always this this
1: one was uh, i i work with a great production partner his name's uh, william Carney. he's at earth orbit productions and uh and then i have a nice circle of people who are sort of obsessed uh thriller confidants So I have my own sort of cliche meter in my head where I'm trying to, every time I see something that's okay, I've seen that in, you know, however many thriller films, I'm going to try not to do that, that, that. But I also make sure I have passes from sort of my, my critical group. So if something is failing the cliche target, they, they always call it on me or if there's a line of dialogue. uh, So it's, it's really nice to have a circle that you trust and so I went back and forth with the script often with those guys. Also, I would say, which was one of the uh, wonderful things, is my actors were extremely collaborative on set. And every time they had a line that just they, could, they, they couldn't make themselves do, we had a back and forth. And we were doing a lot of uh, sort of adjustments on site to make it as natural uh, as possible. So we, we were doing interesting rewrites on set to make things uh, as organic as they could be.
0: When it comes to Taylor's character, you know, this is the you know the woman in this uh, in this film. You know, how do you mm-hmm. go? How did you go about not you know making this a strong character where you're not you know diving into any sort of cliches with her character or not making mm-hmm. it you know from a mis- misogynistic standpoint. This one. Whether it was the
1: right approach or the wrong approach, I actually, Riyadh was a a fairly foreign voice to me that I worked harder on. But with Taylor, I actually made her closer to the voice of myself. So I always was trying to create something where is this something that like, and as far as the empowered woman that I was trying to create, I also had, I was having a lot of women read as well, but she's actually closer to my personal sort of dialogue train than Riyadh was. And so that was my initial take on it was give her the sardonic, uh, sort of, uh, take that I would take to this situation and make it as, as naturalistic as possible and then have, uh, my, uh, my crew look at it and basically call me on anything that they thought was just extremely problematic. So I, it, it really does help to have uh, those feedback loops. But I, but I also, you know, was really, it was something where I'm going to go with the snarkiest version of myself and then put that into this woman's character. <laughs> and and that, that was sort of my initial, like, take on how, how that came to be.
0: Oh, yeah, her snark was pretty good. How do you feel like this movie would differ than a movie of the same type from a different generation. If it was made in the nineties or the eighties or the seventies, you know, how, how do you feel like this would differ and how do you feel like it would be the same?
1: Let's see. I would say the main differences are really in, I, I believe that a lot of the, the movies that were, especially in sort of the, the eighties, early nineties I think you see a more binary version of good and evil. And you also see a a greater level of loyalty to our institutions. And so I think probably this would, you'd have more of a a hero ending of saving the day against it was a bad apple that we sort of resolved. Whereas I think given given the climate we're in today, there's a lot more of a continuum of where the gray is, when does good turn to evil, and, uh, and also what aspects of our institutions are problematic and delving in more. So a movie that had the ending here, I think would be, you'd see it, you'd see it probably a little less uh, in old school. I mean, I think the areas where I'm try I was trying to use more tried and true things that we've seen in the past are as far as uh, I would say setups and reveals, uh, general sort of. Thriller conventions of say less early and uh, don't do uh, massive exposition dumps, like sort of like best practices for for thriller writing and uh, and making sure that the viewer is never ahead of the film and uh, that they always have something that is a complete unknown to them. Um, one of the uh, one of my uh, sort of two of my main uh, inspirations, uh, one is uh, Aaron Sorkin because he's great at sort of not. Saying the obvious thing and then uh, David Fincher, who also is very good at that, but basically looking at those guys and uh, trying to use their best practices as I uh, put the film uh, in, in the works
0: you've touched on this already, but you know just in general, even you know for somebody listening to this, whether they're making mm. movies or doing any sort of art, how important is it to have uh, a trustful team around you to give you feedback about what's good, what's bad, what's problematic?
1: Got it. I I personally am a, a big believer in it. I mean, some people have the sort of auteur conceit, but especially with low-budget filmmaking, this was – a massive collaboration. I mean, if I didn't have my production partner who I trusted, have a cinematographer I really trusted, have this team. I mean, the production design is part of the character of the of the cabin. So all these people brought so many elements to it. So I create the skeleton and then having them add on the layers, I feel like is where you get from the 80% quality to much closer to sort of like 95 or 98 or wherever you, you want that end goal to be, because there's always people who are going to bring a layer that was not in your head and, uh, and helps you. I mean, especially if you uh, source and hire the correct people. I mean, that's, that's why that's so important is making sure you have the right team and that you have that trust built because that was, I think one of my main takeaways here was with, this particular project where it was 12 days and on certain days we were shooting 10 pages a day. You, you have to have that trust so that you can move fast and make decisions quickly. So for me, totally critical.
0: After, you know, doing all the research that you've done for this movie Mm -hmm. and then making the movie, you know, what, you know, in your opinion, are the things that just a regular American should be doing at this time to you know, watch out for themselves to see what's going on mm-hmm. in in our country, and how can how can the regular American contribute to society? Gotcha. I it is
1: it is t- it's definitely a tough a tough thing because we are, we're overwhelmed by so much content right now, and I think the main thing is your typical American should be looking at not. Items like 24-hour news networks, not Facebook postings that have been shared 7 million times that are within the bubble of their friends. I think it's something where, one, when you're going to make a decision on something, at least find one contrary perspective. Because also, just because you don't agree with something doesn't mean they're either dumb or crazy or whatever it is. Like, look at the opposing perspective. Because I, I certainly have members of my family who have different political points of view than I do. And when you are reading sort of the contrary point of view and then you're reading sort of the policy, it's, it's really a matter of do your due diligence also don't take talking points that their face value. And, uh, and just because a lot of people are saying something doesn't mean it's true. It means what's, what's your actual feeling on it and how is it affecting you as a person? And then I, I mean, I, I always am like, vote, research, re- research people you're voting for, know what they actually care about, know what money is going into their campaign. I mean, you, you find out so, so much of that information is available now. So you can make really informed decisions if you choose to. I think it's, it's really about choose to, choose to take a little bit of extra time for, especially for the issues you care about. And uh, so that, that would be mine, but it's, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough climate because there's so much contrary information right now. And I would just say pick your, pick your items that are, are really uh, important to you and then make sure that what you're feeling is on it is, is actually using all the data at your disposal.
0: Going back uh, just into your life, you know, when did you uh, mm-hmm. first sort of get the bug that you wanted to get into filmmaking?
1: wow that one uh that one's been sort of simmering for a while i uh right after uh university i was uh i was doing theater in New York for a bit and then basically decided i was going to do a jump to uh l a and then started uh mainly doing uh acting acting work and I certainly realized soon enough that when you're acting even though there's wonderful skills behind it you're never actually responsible for the theme of the content. What, is, uh, what are you actually saying? What do you wanna say? Um, what kind of art are you actually giving to people? And so that's not under your control necessarily. And so that's when I started sort of swiveling into uh, in film production and looking at uh, sort of green lighting packages, look, working uh, in script, script development and those kinds of areas. And once I started delving in there, it became very clear to me that I really wanted to look at the actual process of directing and do a project from soup to nuts. And uh, I uh, lived in Canada for a number of years. And while I was working in, uh, in video game production up there, I also uh, started having opportunities to do little short films and get these uh, experiences uh, on film. And as I continued to do it, it became clear to me that this was a, a great a great passion of mine and that it was uh, also very addictive you know uh, <laughs> because directing is a super a super fun thing when you actually have everything in place getting to the point where you're ready to film is is really tough and post can also be very tough but uh and and i do love working with actors like from from the training i had it's something where i i think i I do understand their point of view very much, and I, I always like to really try to bring the best out in them when I'm working with them, and so I find that process really uh, fun and uh, and as as I say before, super super addictive because it uh, you know getting getting these people together and putting together a scene that actually is tight and uh, compelling and you, and you really love and after after you're seeing it it's it's uh, it's a wonderful uh, wonderful feeling.
0: What did you learn throughout your journey being you know be, going through uh, experiences in theater and wanting to be mm-hmm. an actor, doing video games and then going into uh, filmmaking? you know was there anything that you learned during that process that sort of translated through all of that it's
1: it all that that was probably my my favorite thing is all of it translates because. The acting, the acting work, made me have a good eye for when things were not naturalistic, when uh, when a moment I wasn't buying it, when something wasn't correctly motivated. So the acting really helps me direct that, and also to uh, create uh, organic and realistic dialogue. The uh, the script development work was great at looking at some of the best scripts I've seen, and then learning best practices of here's a good scene versus a bad scene. Here's a good structure versus a more problematic structure. And then with, uh, with video games, what was great with that is it gave me great practices from a production point of view so that I could put together a film on a really low budget and uh, with an aggressive timeline and still get a level of quality while cutting cutting all kinds of corners to get the, get the project done. So that, that was probably one of my, my favorite things is that every single element that you, you know, all that knowledge you accumulate, all you're, you're using all of it.
0: What's your, what's sort of your method of operation in regards to working with the actors that you work with to get the best out of them?
1: Gotcha. It's um, it really first rehearsal, super important. So I don't shoot anything without doing a a baseline rehearsal of uh, almost all the scenes. And it's not like we need to get the scenes perfect. It's more laying out what's the spirit of the scene, what's the status for uh, for both actors, and then coming up with a baseline blocking so that we know where the camera is going to be. We know generally what kind of escalation we're going to have and even having an idea with them of what is the uh the composition the music escalation that we're going to see as well so that we try and lay out prior to any shooting and then uh, once we're uh, sort of on the day then it's really about creating as either as relaxed an atmosphere depending on the content of the scene or putting them in a really crazy space so that they can hit uh put them sort of off their game and on their game at the same point so that there's an uncomfortability that gives them a, a bit more of a improvisational or organic feel to it. And uh, the other thing that I, I learned a lot on this movie actually was having a, you really do need to take the time of going through numerous takes to Finally, find uh, the correct moments. I I wasn't doing you know along the lines of David O. Russell, 25 takes or 30 takes or ever many, but I did find that the nuance generally came uh, towards the end when we uh, when they'd gone through it a few times and were really comfortable. And once that comfort set in with the actors, that's when you really got some interesting little moments that uh, that they hadn't been uh, finding before.
0: When you know you're going to be working with a limited budget, how does that go into mm-hmm. just the preparation, the writing of making the movie, and then mm-hmm. actually being on set and making the movie?
1: I would say it does impact the the script pretty significantly because with this particular one, I knew I was going to direct it when I started uh, working on the script rewrites. And so... While we were looking at action sequence and those kinds of things, it was always with the caveat in our head of let's make sure this doesn't actually break us while we were doing it. So it's in some ways it's creatively great because it puts you in this box of, okay, I have to find a solution to this particular problem, but I can't leave this room or I need to be within this context and this environment. And so that creates an interesting box for you where you're not gonna send them to the moon, you're going to create this sort of intricate layered element that uh, has to has to work within this context. So that's one great thing about it. As far as the while you're on set, the main thing is you have to be conscious of when, uh, when you missed something on the day because whereas a bigger budget project is like, oh, we'll do pickups, oh, we'll do, you know. We don't have as much flexibility for those kinds of elements. So whenever there was something missed, we have a production meeting at the end of day where it's like, how are we going to grab a moment that either approximates this? So it was always, you have a little bit of producer brain in you while you're doing your directing because you know that you have the limited time frame to get everything you need and you have to keep planning out those days and every time you miss, that's going on your your contingency for the end of the uh end of the run, and you only have so many hours at that end and i, I will say our end day we went through so many sequences because of need based on little moments we missed over the course of the uh, the two <laughs> weeks of shooting, so it was something where it became like we 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 get this or die on so many different scenes.
0: <laughs> is there ever a time when you're shooting something, and then towards the end you're like okay this is this is going good. Maybe we can fit in this thing that we had planned on a few days from now into it right now and it'll actually work. Do you ever get a chance to do that? Oh, we,
1: we I'm very happy that we did get a chance to do that. We had we had certain scenes we thought were going to be extremely problematic that we rocked out super fast, and then we have sort of our our backlog of scenes of okay we missed this on this day let's jump in there. Oh, the lighting is just right for this scene let's jump in there, and we did that a lot actually. And um, I mean we also had moments of the opposite where <laughs> a scene was like just lost <laughs> lost where it was going to be and. At the end of it, we're like, we we basically moved on and we're, okay, we're going to need to come back to the scene. We know we didn't get it and we have to find a time later. And so whenever we have those great moments where we are super efficient and rocket, it, it's great to be able to be like, Oh, let's get in this insert that we thought we were going to miss.
0: When you have those scenes where you realize, okay, it ain't, it just ain't going to work today. We got to do it another day. <laughs> you know, what do you do before you shoot it next?
1: Let's see the, <sighs> Well, this one it was one of the moments where I uh, I probably let it go too long. We had a uh, we had a scene that was going long, and then we had a really important scene, which was Taylor and Riyadh in the office uh, talking about Catalyst, and uh, required some of the special effects. And so that one was end of day. There was a lot of pressure in that we had to time out all the SFX with a very a very specific timeline. And so it was something where I could tell our our actors were definitely tense, nervous, and and the lines were like sort of losing themselves. And so that was one where I kept trying it a few times and soon became clear that this one was just not going to happen. And so even though we got most of it, we cut it off early and did uh, some final sort of easier sequences and knew we were gonna to have to go back to it. But it's it's a really tough one because you you have the schedule in your brain and you're, you're always like, oh, we have to get this today or die. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. And you have to just sort of pivot your entire schedule really quickly.
0: What do you hope the audience that watches Killbird gets out of watching it?
1: Let's see, a few things. I think it's, one, it's about what is your first impression of something? What is something actually? And two, I think it's like people changing minds, changing, changing their point of view because you have, uh, and as I say, without, without revealing spoilers, you have a situation at the end of the film where you, there was a certain scenario and then you have a pivot where you have a reversal and, uh, and Taylor is left in a very different space than she was much earlier in the film. So I, I think it's something where the ability to see change, the ability to look at sort of the continuum of what is good and what is evil in our world, and just our general perception of of what's out there and how as individuals we're looking at it. What what is the What is the importance of an individual's response to something like, are you propagating what other people are saying, or are you taking the time to change that conversation
0: to anybody listening to this interview doesn't matter what our avenue of artistry mm-hmm. that they're in what's something mm-hmm. what's sort of a nugget of knowledge from your life or career that anybody listening to this could sort of project into their own life
1: let's say i would say the big one and this is this is a little cliche but it's it's something where if you, if you are really passionate about something, other people will see that passion, and you can build a village around it, and that thing can happen. Generally, it's, it's tough if you're an event individual alone, but if, if you have enough passion for a project or any, any work of art, um, usually the content that you're submitting will show that passion there, and then that will start creating a community around it. Because I, this, this project I was specifically passionate about, and I think it started to resonate with a group, and then that group expanded and expanded again. And that, especially when you're on low budgets and things, it's, it's about the community you create and, uh, and just continuing to sort of like move forward with whatever that passion is. That, that's what I would say.
0: Right. Going forward, you know, what's, you know, what do you have on the horizon? Is there anything else that you can talk about that you'll be working on?
1: Sure. Um, I do have uh, a lot of other thrillers on the horizon. Probably the most immediate one is uh, I'm tag teaming with my, uh, my uh, other production partner on a supernatural thriller called Relapse, which is uh, very basically upping the game from, uh, from this project and going into sort of uh, a bit more of visual effects territory. And it uh, investigates sort of what, Additionally, what is truth in that you've got a mentally ill man who uh, is on drugs and what he's seeing, he's not clear whether it's real. And then the other project I have on the uh, horizon is a, a revenge thriller uh, called uh, Lex Talionis, which is uh, really about our justice system and uh, when our justice system fails us and what uh, what we can do as individuals, sometimes to to a bad <laughs> negative place to, uh, try and, uh, get justice in those situations. And, um, and that looks at almost a, a very, uh, 12 angry men kind of scenario, but with more life and death on the line, uh, depending on, uh, basically a, a crisis that happens. Right. I know that's very, a little vague, but it's, uh, <laughs> I don't want to reveal too much at the stage.
0: <laughs> right. What did you do in the gaming industry and you know, how, you know, how did that influence your filmmaking?
1: I have been a, uh, first I was a narrative director who was uh, working on small projects for Ubisoft. Then I became a producer uh, working with, on, uh, with Warner Brothers on projects like Batman Arkham Origins, working uh, with the Dead Rising franchise for Capcom. And the great thing that it allowed me to do was, one, I was working with great video game writers who were inspiring. And also I had to deal with a lot of, video game cinematics, motion capture. And that is a really interesting process where you meet a lot of uh, interesting actors. And uh, and two of them, actually, I met when I was uh, working at Capcom, who are in Kilbert. Uh I met both Alicia while I was uh, dealing with uh, Capcom uh, uh, mocap, as well as uh, Aaron Douglas. Um, and so it's it's something where it's a world that's not too far from film anymore because a lot of video games are hitting that level of fidelity. So there's an interesting back and forth between them. And even the, whether it's the talent, whether it's the cinematic directors, the actors, you find they all kind of live in the same community. So it it almost doubled down on uh, what I was doing in, uh, in film in that I could basically go back and forth and leverage different elements from both industries.
0: And, uh, I always like to, uh, um, I always like to end my interviews with the same question. And I, uh, gave Mm -hmm. it to you ahead of time to think about, you know, who is somebody that you would suggest that I have on this podcast that would have some great stories or some lessons to talk about?
1: Got it. I, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that. And there's, there's a guy I worked with when I, uh, was in LA prior to moving to Canada, who was very inspiring to me his name is ron west and he uh was an actor uh, on third rock from the sun for a long time and then he did a lot of uh, work with second city um just uh sort of setting the stage for what good improv is but i did a a number of plays with him when i was back here and he basically was one of the inspirations i had as far as create your own stuff in that he wrote this wonderful musical. Called the People versus Friar Lawrence, that was sort of this sardonic parody of Romeo and Juliet, and uh, which had a, a great uh, run at the uh, the UBCP Theater and uh, and uh, or actually, sorry, Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And after uh, after like seeing that and seeing that come to fruition, I uh, and also he's just he's a he's a super funny guy. He's been in the industry forever, and so I, I think he'd be one that would be a, an interesting guy, guy for you to tap.
0: All right, thank you. Before we get out of here, where can people uh, go online to get more information about what you're doing and more information about Killbird?
1: Certainly. So it's uh, Facebook uh, Killbird Movie. It's also Instagram Killbird Movie. And uh, frozenfishproductions.com is the website for my company. And uh, we'll be providing more information soon as far as distribution, new festivals that are coming out. It's all uh, in motion right now, and I hope to have updates in in the next couple months.
0: Alright, so that was my interview with Joe Zanetti. For more information about Killbird, you can go to the show notes for this episode at fresh And before we get out of here, I definitely want to remind you how you could support the podcast. Um, I'm on Patreon now, so you can go to patreon.com slash fresh of the word. And for as little as a one dollar a month, you can support Fresh of the Word. And for the three dollar a month tier, uh, you have access to our Patreon only Episodes where I go deep into my audio archive for interviews that I've done outside of Fresh as the Word for the past 10 years or so. A lot of stuff that I just used a little bit for an article, some I didn't even use at all. So there's a lot of exclusive content. It's all music stuff though, and I got some good stuff up already. I'm gonna try to do about five episodes a month for the Patreon only subscribers. And remember, Fresh of the Word does stream pretty much anywhere podcasts are streamed. So please rate and review anywhere that you can, especially Apple Podcasts. that help out the show a lot. And if you want to follow Fresh of the Word online, you can go to uh, Twitter at Fresh is the Word. And that's is with I-Z. Instagram at Fresh is the Word Podcast. And you can join the Fresh of the Word podcast facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fresh is the word it's a really cool group and you can follow me online on twitter and instagram at kfresh is the word or you can email me at djkfresh at gmail.com if you have any comments thoughts pitches anything you want to send to me that'd be great all right that's another episode in the books thank you for listening and like always go out there and live life with intensity with a capital 10